that you'd open with me to Hebrews and chapter 10. Hebrews and chapter 10. And once you get to chapter 10, go ahead and jump down to verse 19. Our focus is going to be verses 24 and 25, but we're going to go ahead and read 19 through 25 together uh, to set this in the context, and you'll see uh, why as we uh, go along. So Hebrews 10 and verses 19 through 25, this is part three of our dearest place on earth study through uh, biblical church membership. Pray it's been fruitful for you thus far. And if you got Hebrews 10, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. It'll also be on uh, the screen behind me in my translation coming out of the New American Standard again this week. God's Word says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a, high, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. It's God's word, and may God write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Being honest, on some Sundays, the park looked like a better option, writes Sam Alberry in his book, Why Bother with the Church. He continues, I was working for a church in Oxford, and my walk to the morning service every Sunday took me through a park. It was lovely. There was something for everyone, a swimming pool, tennis courts, a boating pond, a lake full of ducks, a playground, plenty of space for ball games, and plenty of benches for watching everyone doing their something. On a sunny Sunday morning, the place was full, everyone doing their thing and having a great time. And there I was, walking through it all, Bible tucked under my arm, on my way to church. The park looked like a lot less effort than church. The park looked like a lot of fun. You could choose what you wanted to do. How often you went, if you went, how long you stayed. Feel like tennis? Come and play. Feel more like sitting on your own reading a book? Great. And if you're not here next week, that's fine. You can make friends or not, as you wish. The park also looked a lot more normal. No one would think I was strange for going there. Lots of friends might like to come. Going to the park is a regular, normal part of 21st century life. Church increasingly is not. We live in a time when there is a huge number of alternatives to church on Sunday, readily available and seemingly very attractive. Sports, bed, shopping, brunch with the gang, hobbies. And as the number of options available to us grows and grows, church seems more and more irrelevant than ever. Church is an effort. It is sometimes hard, and it's far from normal. So why bother going at all? Why bother making it a priority in your week every week? Why bother getting stuck in when it means putting yourself out? After all, the park is right there, ready and waiting. I imagine those types of thoughts are not unique to Albury. Increasingly, it seems that other options for how to spend a Sunday morning are not only more prevalent than ever, but more attractive. The numbers bear this out. 
Perhaps you saw this in the news, but less than a month ago, Gallup published the results of a survey that garnered much attention. The survey found that membership in houses of worship continued to decline and have dropped below 50% for the first time in Gallup's eight-decade trend. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque, down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. They concluded that the decline in church membership is primarily a function of the increasing number of Americans who express no religious preference, the so-called nuns. But I think there's more to play than that. Another survey that was published by Pew Research about two years ago asked Americans why they did or did not go to religious services on a regular basis. The leading reason why those surveyed did not go to church was because they said they practiced their faith in other ways. In other words, they feel as though the church was unnecessary for their spiritual life. After all, they could just as easily worship God by going for a hike or catching some fish or doing the dishes or even by sleeping in. Some said they didn't have time. Others said they don't like church. Others said they haven't found a church they like. Others still said they just don't have a reason why they don't go. They just don't. So I wonder, must one physically go to church? In order to grow, is the church and attendance therein optional for the Christian? Can one truly practice their Christianity the way that they see fit? Can one worship just as well alone in the woods as with other Christians? Is this the design given to us in Scripture? And if one is a member of a church, must they really go and attend the gatherings? Is there a correlation between membership? and regular attendance, and what ought to be our focus when we go. There are many texts, as we've already seen in this series, that bear out the answer to these questions. But perhaps none offer such obvious answers as this present text with such vivid clarity. We saw in Matthew 16 and 18 that Christ is the establisher and ruler of the church, has given authority to the church to bind and loose, to affirm the profession of faith and the faithful walks of their members to bring in, to put out. We've seen that membership means mutual care and affection to keep one another walking faithfully, and that Jesus sees a clear line between who is in the church and who is out. We saw from 1 Corinthians that even the word member itself is a biblical word packed with meaning that carries with it attachment to the body and use of gifts in unity, in diversity, and equality. But now we have a text that explicitly commands attendance in the gathering. But why? And to what end? Now, before we dive into 24 and 25, it's important to see what came directly before these verses. That's why we read them. You see, the command to not stay away from the gathering is not given as a naked command isolated from any indicatives. By that, I mean that in context, the commands of 23 through 25, this, you see how many times he says, let us, let us, this is a what's called the lettuce patch of Hebrews, lettuce, lettuce, lettuce. All of these commands are given in light of the truths of 19 through 22. Okay, in fact, verses 19 through 25 are one sentence in Greek. All of it belongs together. So you see that the author, what the author says in 19 through 22. He starts with, therefore, because everything he is about to say 
flows out of what he has already said in the previous nine plus chapters about who Jesus is and what he has done. So he actually connects what Jesus has done to save us with being active members in the local church. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. He's saying that we who had no business entering into the heavenly holy of holies, we were far off, we who have been alienated from God by our sin, we who have no good thing to commend ourselves to a holy and just God, have confidence now to enter into fellowship with the triune God. But why? Is it because we suddenly found morality and goodness and we have produced in ourselves good deeds pleasing to God on our own merit? Is that why? Is it because we have somehow merited entrance into the most holy place on our own? No, it's because, doesn't it say why? Because the second person of the Trinity has entered flesh took on the wrath of God that we deserve, shed his own blood, and rose again. It is because a great double imputation has happened through Christ. God imputed the punishment of our sins onto his innocent shoulders, and he has imputed the righteousness of Christ onto those who would repent and give him utter allegiance. So the only one who could walk into the holy of holies is the great and perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. He's the only one to merit such things. But because of his great love and shedding of blood, he walks us into the presence of God with him. But not just in the future when we die, but he's talking about here and now. So from whence does this confidence that he talks about come from? Not in us, not in our ability to have faith or be good, but in the object of our faith, the perfect God-man Jesus the Christ. It is his flesh that replaces the temple curtain. It is he who is the truer and better high priest over the house of God. So we draw near to God because of Christ who walks us into God's presence. But here's the thing. He doesn't walk us into God's presence alone. So even though we are saved as individuals, we are saved into a people. Which is why it says that he is the high priest over the house of God. That means there are others in the house. The author of Hebrews then connects, do you see this? The vertical drawing near with the horizontal drawing near to others who are fellow believers in the church. In other words, the truth of what Christ has done must flow out to the fruit of how we relate to others. The imperatives of how we are to be members in the church flows out of the indicatives of Christ's selfless sacrifice on our behalf to achieve our redemption and place us into his family. So don't miss this, okay? The author of Hebrews connects church membership and the posture we have toward the body of Christ with our redemption, doesn't he? If we are redeemed, then we ought to have fruit of that redemption and that is shown forth primarily in how we draw near and treat Christ's church. Why else would the command to gather be in the same sentence as the reminder of the gospel? Church membership and commitment to the gatherings of the church with which we have covenanted with aids us in drawing near to God. It gives us assurance. It helps us hold fast to the confession of hope 
without wavering. That's what the author says. Albert Muller comments, we cannot have confidence and full assurance of faith apart from the church. We cannot endure isolation. Each Christian desperately needs the body of believers for encouragement. To obtain assurance, we need continual reminding from other saints. Adds Ben Witherington, our author clearly thinks that keeping the faith is more likely to happen if the faithful continue to congregate together. And this is what we will see this morning. We'll continue to answer the question, what is church membership and what does it entail? And how does this text point us to church membership anyway? Three things, okay? Three things we'll see from this text this morning that will help us answer this question. So the first is, number one, church membership is other-focused, okay? Church membership is other-focused. In light of what Christ has done for you and others, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This word consider, do you see that? Consider, in verse 24, carries with it the meaning of careful consideration, thoughtful attention, and deep concern, okay? But it's also present and active, which means that it's something that we are to do now and keep doing with no end date. The focus is utterly, utterly on considering others. Can you find any considering of self in this passage? No, none, okay? And that flies right in the face of our sinful nature and everything that our culture tells us we ought to do and how we ought to think. Isn't that true? We are told constantly through every stream of media that our primary focus should be on self and how we could get the most for ourselves. We are told we are enough. We are told our happiness is the goal. We are told to cast off others if they get in the way of our expressive individualism, wherein we are told that we find meaning in giving expression to our own feelings and desires first and foremost. And this tells us that we really don't need the church after all. And if we do go to it, we ought to have the posture of consumer and customer rather than giver and covenanter. Brett McCracken in his book Uncomfortable says this, this sort of faith unshackled from the burdens of community promises contentment, but in many cases it seems to deliver isolation that's at once comfortable and terrible. Leaving us alone with the universe, alone with the God within. This is a sad form of faith. A faith of isolation has nothing prophetic to say or revolutionary to offer to a world in isolation. Loneliness is everywhere today, amplified by social media dynamic that blurs the line between consumerism and human connection. But here comes the author of Hebrews, who just reminded us of the selflessness of the pre-existent Christ in order to benefit the undeserving, and he calls us to take the focus off of ourselves and put it on to others. But we first must get over our preoccupation with self 
in order to pursue consideration of others because you can't rightly continue to consider others and give thoughtful attention to one another if you're busy being concerned with self. That's not breaking any news, right? You know that. You may remember a few years ago, there was an archaeological discovery at Pompeii that uncovered a bunch of homes and other buildings that were very well preserved uh, due to the volcano that wiped out the city and buried it under ash. It was almost like it was frozen in time. Well, one of the the biggest discoveries was a well-preserved fresco of Narcissus. You know him? He was a hunter in Greek mythology, and he was utterly enamored with his own reflection. His downfall was that he could not stop staring at himself. This is our predisposition in our fallen state. Isn't it? We are enamored with ourselves. And this is why, to recall from last week, we cultivate friendships with people who are like us. It's why we are driven to that tribalism of sameness, which, as David Brooks so eloquently put it, is just community for lonely narcissists. Truly, who do you think about more than anyone? Tell me. Who do you talk to more than you talk to yourself? Whose feelings do you filter everything through? When you hear about something, who is the first person you consider how it will affect? This is why we're so miserable. This is why if you look back at every church division or controversy that you have seen or experienced or heard about, It all goes back to people advocating for themselves or for their group, which happens to look like, agree with, align preferences with, and affirm themselves. In his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, Tom Rainer and his team, I've told you about this before, he studied 14 churches that died, and they wanted to discover why so that other churches wouldn't make the same mistake. And he said, Every one of the 14 autopsy churches were preference-driven. Every one. My music style, my desired length and order of worship, my desired color and design of buildings and rooms, my activities and programs, my need of ministers and staff, my, my, my. And where does that posture come from? A consideration not of others, but of self. And in such situations, when When such fights and divisions and controversies arise, the question we should ask the agitators is, why are you focusing on yourself at all? Is that the spirit of Christ? Is that the biblical call of membership? Why be preoccupied with your own wants when there's a church full of people to focus on? (laughs) Because biblical membership calls us to a better way, don't you see? It calls us to take the attention completely off ourselves, not to consider ourselves, but to carefully consider and keep considering and keep considering and keep considering and keep considering, and and guess what? Keep considering fellow members until you die. Truly, think of how little division would happen in the church if we had this posture. Think of how much unity and 1 Corinthians 13, love. And 1 Corinthians 12, edification would happen if every member focused only on others. And so sinful are we. 
and I'm including myself in this, that we hear that. And our initial response when told not to think about ourselves is, that can't be right. (laughs) And that's because we're thinking culturally rather than biblically. So instead of always thinking, what about me and my group, you ought to ask, how can I serve others and help them love Jesus and the church and do good deeds for the glory of Christ? But here's the question. Who are you supposed to be considering? All Christians? In some sense, yes. But functionally speaking, the author of Hebrews has in mind a local congregation you have covenanted with. You can rightly obey this passage when you have committed to one church whom you can continually consider and think of and spur on to love and good deeds. And since this is an ongoing action, the continual building up of one another can only result from intentional pouring into a specific group of people that the believer knows and loves and has committed their life to. And this love flows out of the love from Christ shown supremely in his substitutionary death on behalf of you and your siblings in Christ. Consideration, therefore, of people in the church leads to love, and love, by definition, acts for the good of the object. Otherwise, it's not love. If you are a nomad, driven from church to church, or you are non-committal, refusing to join a local church, or you are sporadic in your attendance at the gatherings, how do you rightly obey verse 24? How do you consider and keep considering? Who do you consider and keep considering? Who do you stimulate to love and good deeds? This kind of considering and stimulating requires uncomfortable commitment. F.F. Bruce said in his commentary, love is provoked in the sense of being stimulated in the lives of Christians by their brethren. This will never happen if they keep one another at a distance. And that's a fitting segue into our second point. Point number two, church membership means gathering. Church membership means gathering. The author of Hebrews says outright in verse 25, do not forsake our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Gathering in worship of the local church is plainly commanded here. Yes? It is not given as optional for <laughs> Christian. Further, obedience to verse 24 and the second half of verse 25 is not possible if one forsakes the assembly of the local church. To do so is to say, is to, says the author, leave your fellow believers brothers and sisters, in the lurch, and thus deprives them of needed support. You cannot consider and keep considering if you abandon the fellowship. You can't spur others to love and good deeds if you're absent yourself from their continued presence. Isn't that very clear here? Like, I'm not going out on a limb here. Like, it's, it's all very, very clear. To a, not attend the gatherings in an ongoing, continual, committed basis is, in the words of John Fulmer, arrogant and selfish. It's arrogant as if you don't need the church. And it's selfish as if the church doesn't need you. And you know something? That's the very posture I had towards the church for years and years and years. I thought that I could 
do Christianity by myself. I thought I didn't need the church. I thought I could just, just be as faithful with just me and Jesus as I, as I could by joining and regularly attending a church. I was arrogant. I thought I didn't need the church. I was selfish, as if the church didn't need the gift that the Spirit had given me to use for the body of Christ. And I even had a friend when I was stationed with in Alaska. He asked me, come to my church. And I can remember so vividly, I said, I don't need it. I don't need it. I said, the Bible doesn't tell me I need to go to church or join the church. Boy, how wrong was I? The proof is in the Hebrews 10.25 pudding. (laughs) Straight up commanded here. I was thus, I was in active, willful, unrepentant sin by absenting myself from a local church. The arrogance of not committing, I'm talking about myself, the arrogance of not committing to attending the local gathering as a life priority at a place where you've committed to through formal membership is what we're saying. We're saying we can live our Christian lives in a way that is utterly opposite of what Christ designed. Jesus designed the church in such a way to make Christians dependent on one another for faithfulness and growth, to cast off the church and regular attendance as necessity and non-negotiable of life is to cast off Christ's very design for what it looks like to follow him. As John Wesley said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion, and it doesn't. It is to say that we know better than the triune God as to how to live in light of the gospel, how to live the Christian life. And if Scripture is commanding us to not neglect the assembly, and if going to the assembly is the fruit of the gospel of 19 through 23, having taken root in our hearts, then to abandon the assembly is willful and unrepentant sin, isn't it? Someone once asked Tim Keller, can a person be a Christian without being a member of a church? And Tim Tim Keller replied, yes, but not an obedient one. Why would he say that? Derek Rishmawi puts it like this, because there is simply no way you could claim to be a Christian who is actually trying to obey Jesus and grow in godliness without it. What's more, you can't say you're striving to love Jesus either. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, which includes those delivered by his apostles in the New Testament. Because you cannot obey all of those one another passages in the New Testament or 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 or Matthew 18 or Hebrews 13, 17 or Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 without not only membership, but the biblical membership that looks like active attendance and physical attachment. Charles Spurgeon, can you imagine me quoting him? He preached a sermon on church membership where he kind of like went through common objections and answered the most common objections to people who wouldn't join or wouldn't go. And he, the sermon was called Joining the Church. And he said this, and this is a longer quote than I tor- typically uh, read, but it's too good not to share. Okay, listen to what he says. He says, now I know there are some who say, well, I hope I have given myself to the Lord, but I do, do not intend to give myself to any church. Now, why not? Because I could be a Christian without it. Spurgeon says, now are you quite clear about that? You could be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient. 
then you believe that if you were to do an act which has a tendency to destroy the visible church of God, you would be as good as a Christian as if you did your best to build up that church? I do not believe it, sir, nor do you either. You have not any such a belief. It is only a trumpery excuse for something else. There is a brick, a very good one. What is the brick made for? To help build a house with. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good-for-nothing brick. Until it is built into the wall, it is no good. So you Rolling Stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life of which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for injury that you do. Isn't it good he minced words? So those who neglect the assembly cut themselves off from the very means by which Christ designed for the Christian to flourish. The very means by which God has designed for us to be fed, assured, and protected. <clears throat> to say as I did, I could do this alone or without regular attendance at the gathering is to defy the very commands of Christ and the very design he has for the life of his followers. Do you guys see that word translated forsaking or neglecting in verse 25? That literally means to leave in the lurch or abandon or desert. It carries with it a heavy meaning that communicates that when one makes a habit of not going to the weekly gatherings, they are in reality abandoning or deserting their fellow believers. See, we're such a transient and consumeristic society that when someone hops from one church to another or simply stops attending, we view such things as rather innocuous and normal, right? Brother Joe just has some other things going on and is too busy. Sister Margaret doesn't like the music or program, so they're going somewhere else. We present it, and we talk about it as if they chose to go to Denny's instead of Waffle House. Like, who cares? It's just their innocent choice. The author of Hebrews says they are doing far more than that. They're literally abandoning the fellowship. It's not the difference between having burnt coffee in a green building rather than burnt coffee in a yellow building. It's to leave fellow Christians in the lurch. Because those who absent themselves from God's people whom they have covenanted with can do nothing to stimulate one another to love and good deeds or to encourage others, right? Do you see that? To withdraw from the church and the gatherings is to court spiritual disaster. The author of Hebrews says that only by remaining united could they preserve their faith and witness. Jonathan Lehman said, when members stop attending a church and don't join another one, they're often sinning or on their way to sinning. There's something in their life they don't want to be seen. There's accountability and love they would prefer to be without. Don't the verses that, if you look back down at your scripture, don't the verses that follow this text bear that out? The author follows the command to not neglect the assembly with a discussion of the dangers of willingly sinning. Which leads me to ask, 
And this is something you can ask people who absent themselves from the church too. If you aren't regularly attending a local church that you are a covenant member of, who holds you accountable? Who helps you stay on the narrow path of discipleship? Who keeps you from wandering into destructive sin? How do you know you're following Jesus and not a deified version of yourself? These questions matter because look what follows the command to not abandon the gathering in verse 25. Do these things all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? Day of the Lord. The day that Jesus will close out this age and will judge the living and the dead. You know, there's a newish acronym. I, maybe it's not that new, but it's bandied about occasionally nowadays. That FOMO. Have you heard of FOMO before? It means fear of missing out. It's actually considered a social anxiety. <laughs> but it's the idea that people these days are afraid that they're going to miss out on something awesome. Right? So that's why we pick up these incessant rectangles at every opportunity and doom scroll through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. We're afraid we'll miss something. It's why we prefer to leave our options open rather than commit. It's why my generation is getting married at lower and slower rates. It's why we leave our options open, and if, even if we decide to go to something, we still, in the back of our mind, know that if something more appealing comes up, we'll go do that. And church attendance, unfortunately, is one of those things that we'd like to go to but I mean, if something better comes up, we'll go do that. All kinds of other things we don't want to miss out on happen to come about on weekends, don't they? And after all, church will be there next week, and the week after that, if I miss, no big deal until it actually becomes an easy habit and we think we aren't really missing church much if we, we aren't missing much if we miss church regularly. But here's the thing, you may indeed miss out on something dope going on in your social life or recreation, or whatever. But there's something you will not miss out on. And your kids won't miss out on, and your parents won't miss out on, and your friends won't miss out on, and your neighbors won't miss out on, and your coworkers won't miss out on, and your fellow church members won't miss out on, and that is the day of the Lord. You can look up at 927, and what does it say? It is appointed for men to die, and then the judgment. Every person without exception will stand before the throne of the living Christ and they will have to answer to the king of the universe for how they lived and how they treated his bride. What's my point? My point is that those who neglect the gatherings regularly are doing far more than skipping out on some meeting. They're communicating something about what they cherish. And they're flashing a neon light to you that something is going on in their heart and life that is not good. And it is the role of the church to call them back, to rebuke them in love out of concern for their souls so that they may be stimulated and stimulate others, and all the more as judgment day draws near. We must have this posture towards church membership. And I, I quote Alberry, and he said, the most obvious way to express our membership of a church family is by committing to being there regularly and making weekly attendance a priorities. We show up. We're determined to. We won't just be there when we happen to be in town with nothing else going on. We'll be there when it inconveniences us. 
We'll be prepared to cut a weekend trip short to be back in time for church. We'll go when the weather's bad. We'll go when we're tired and we'd rather have time to ourselves. We recognize that we need this kind of fellowship and encouragement every single week of our lives, even when we're really not in the mood for it. Now, here's the key. I will do this if I've realized something crucial. Going to church is not about me and what I will get out of it this week. I belong to others there, and so it is about them and how I can encourage and serve them. This shifts my focus. I am not now thinking, is church going to scratch where I itch today? If not, maybe I will give it a miss. No, I'll be thinking, I need to be with my Christian family today. I need the rest of the body, and the rest of the body needs me. It is hard to get to know the rest of my church family and for them to get to know me if I'm not attending regularly. It's hard for me to be led by those God has placed over me if I only show up occasionally. The most fundamental way in which we express our membership is by being there. Do you see? But now here's a question. Without biblical church membership, without a formal recognition and process for admitting someone into the church, how can someone be recognized as absent from the body? Because point number three, church membership means encouraging one another. It means encouraging one another, which is connected to not forsaking the assembly. We are to encourage one another to not absent ourselves from the body. And when we see someone missing, it is the role of the church to call them back and encourage them to cease neglecting the gathering. If it is true that making a habit of neglecting the gathering is spiritually dangerous, which it is, then the members must encourage one another to continue attending and focusing on how to stimulate others to love and good deeds. Now, you see this word encouraging. It carries with it the dual notion of both encouragement and exhortation. The community not only encourages one another in the strictly positive sense of the word, they exhort one another to growth in the Lord and towards everything the author of Hebrew has pointed to. So won't the believer find encouraging and exhorting others while they are encouraged and exhorted by others increasingly difficult if his or her attendance in the gathering is infrequent, erratic, or ceases completely? And encouraging is, like consider in verse 24, present and active, which means it begins, it happens now, and it has no end date. That means it is an ongoing and active command. So how can one encourage continually if they aren't together frequently? And, you know, I know that we do not want to say to make a habit of staying away from the gathering is sin. Do we? (laughs) We don't want to say that. Because we have family members who do it. And we have friends who do it. And we have people we like who we've known forever, who used to come here and don't, who do it. But that doesn't make it not sin. And if we love them, we wouldn't say, that's cool, you do you, I'm going to do me. We would consider them and we would do what's best for their soul, which is call them privately and in love and and call them on their sin and guide them to a better way, that's encouraging and exhorting. You realize that every day, judgment day, gets all the more close? It's closer today than it was yesterday, and it'll be closer tomorrow 
than it is today. And that's part of why those stats I read at the beginning are so frightening, because as time goes on, we get closer to the end of the age, but self-professed Christians attend less and less. When Hebrews says to do the exact opposite, and it's detrimental to our souls. Jeff Robinson gives this illustration, which I think is poignant. He said, on Saturday afternoons as a child, I often watched the television program Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. I recall a common occurrence during the zoologist study of animal herds. The camera would show one crippled, weak animal, usually a wildebeest, falling behind the rest of the pack and ultimately left behind as the other animals fled across the plain. Another camera would show a pride of lions observing the herd, scouting for an easy meal, eyes fixed on the limping wildebeest. And you know what happened next. This is a useful parable for the Christian life. Left alone, believers like the ailing wildebeest are easy prey for Satan's devices. Why? Because avoiding the church leaves us exposed and able to be pulled away from the pack of fellow believers, the place where we receive the support and protection necessary to grow into maturity. All of us need this kind of encouragement and exhortation, right? All of us need others to spur us on to love and good deeds. All of us need other people to come alongside us and remind us that this thing isn't about us. All of us need to be reminded of the truths of 19 through 23, lest we get discouraged and fall back to believing our assurance depends on our performance. Don't you need that? I need that. That, that's why gatherings, that's what men, gatherings are meant to do, don't you see? Whether or not you had a good day of worship at the gathering of the church should not hinge on whether or not you heard your favorite songs in your favorite key by your favorite method with your favorite instrument. Nor if the church did all the programs you like in just the way you like them. Nor if the pastor preached an engaging sermon that didn't take too long and happened to tickle your itch. Nor if you were catered to like poolside country club member. Whether you had a good day at the gathering of the church should hinge on whether you heard scripture read and sung and preached. Whether you joined your voices with your fellow believers singing truths about Christ and heard them sing back to you. Whether you were pointed to Christ and away from self, because more joy and encouragement is found there than anywhere else. Friends, we live in a dark, fallen world, don't we? And we are sojourners. We are strangers. And this gospel, living in light of it, is super weird, and it's such a dark place. And it isn't easy. But it's easier when we do it together. But when we don't, we're setting ourselves up to be hurt by sin in our lives and stagnant in our growth. We have to realize and let sink into our hearts is what we saw at the beginning. We have zero right to walk into the presence of God. We were far off and deservingly so. God could have crushed us and he would have been just to do so. And so sinful are we that it took the shedding of the blood of not just anyone, but the perfect God in flesh. And he died and rose to bring you near. That's how sinful and helpless you are. 
And we're prone to doubt, and we're prone to rely on our record and our morality and lack thereof and become arrogant thinking we're doing this thing on our own, or we become downcast thinking we failed too much to approach God, and we are this ball of inconsistency as we stubbornly follow our fickle hearts. But remembering what Christ is and his merit that walks into God, us into God's presence should both humble and encourage us, and that's what the church is meant to remind us. Because remembering the truths of 19 through 23 should also make us recognize how unable we are to live this Christian life outside of God's design for us, which is the church. Because it is here that we can shed our selfishness and focus on others as they focus on us and as they remind us of the blood of Christ and as they remind us of our confession of hope and as they remind us that he who promised is faithful and they spur us on to selfless love and good deeds and they encourage and exhort us to live in light of the gospel. Friends, there's so much freedom here. There's freedom in that we can stop worrying about and advocating for ourselves all the live long day. Because friends, that joke is exhausting. It's miserable. The most miserable Christians I know are also the most selfish. And there's freedom in focusing on others and joy in serving one another. And there's freedom in being held accountable by people who, know, who we know love us for Christ's sake. And there's freedom in being part of a community where we can freely confess sin because we know these folks are going to help us walk out of it. And bear the burden with us. And there's freedom in being encouraged and watched over so we don't slip off onto the wide path, which is far easier and more eye-dazzling than the narrow path, but it's also soul-destroying. You need the church, and the church needs you, and that means committing, covenanting, coming, and staying. It means being uncomfortable because you know that it's in discomfort that we grow. It means having your mind absorbed by how you can help others in the church grow in love for Jesus and one another. It means falling over yourself, trying to serve others, especially when it's inconvenient. And even when you'd rather be doing something else. It means singing songs you wouldn't play in your car because you know they are about exalting Christ and your singing will encourage the people around you. It means helping others Hold fast to the confession and entering the uncomfortable space of sin confession and rebuke. It means calling people who have been absent from the gathering and reminding them that they are missing out on what God is doing here and if necessary, lovingly rebuking them to cease forsaking the assembly. It means scheduling the gatherings as a non-negotiable of you and your family's weekly life up there with eating dinner and going to work and school. It means missing out on other things because you don't want to miss out on the best, which is gathering with the church of Christ, which is a foretaste of heaven itself. It means encouraging and encouraging and encouraging and encouraging others who you have nothing else in common with but Christ and all the more as time marches on. It means you invest in the soul care of your fellow church member, which is often uncomfortable and messy but it's worth it because you want what's best for their eternal state. That's what it means to be a church member. Are you willing? Allow me to share one last thing before we come to the Lord's table. This is from Matt Merker's new book, Corporate Worship, which, cheap plug, you can buy at the bookstall out here, okay, if you feel so inclined. He says this, Do you know what I see as, a, as the congregation I belong to meets 
I see Martina, whose husband recently passed away. She tears up while we sing, It Is Well With My Soul. I see Jared, the successful banker in the back row who is being discipled by Ben, an unemployed guy sitting in the balcony. I see John, a Jewish man who came to faith a few years ago while listening to a sermon here on the parable of the prodigal son. His father opposes his trust in Christ, yet he gathers here with his new spiritual family every Lord's Day. Are these folks ever at home due to illness or away on vacation? Sure. But basically, I can expect to see them here every week. As I look across the gathering, I see believers who are helping one another follow Christ through persecution, cancer, miscarriage, addiction, depression, and more. And they've committed to doing that in part by assembling here together. They're singing the same songs, confessing the same faith and the same creed, hearing the same scriptures read and the same sermon preached, sharing the same bread and the same cup. Just as the sight of his bride makes a groom's heart swell with love, church members should overflow with affection for one another when they behold the assembly. This is the people whom Jesus bought with his own blood. This is the people who have committed to care for me, put up with my faults, and point me to Christ again and again. And I wonder... Is that what you want to see at FBC Cordial? Even better, is that what God wants to see at FBC Cordial? By his grace, it could become such a place. But only if we see who Christ is as Savior, King, and head of the body, and we submit ourselves to his word and humble ourselves to his work in his way for his glory. 